0: I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tali Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Reverse Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with author Pamela Logan about her latest book, Compassion Mandala, the Odyssey of an American Charity in Contemporary Tibet. Pam Logan can usually be found with her head in the clouds, moving uphill. At the age of 19, she took up karate while pursuing an engineering degree at Caltech. She later got an aerospace Ph.D. from Stanford, but then left her career as a scientist to investigate the warrior tribes of the Eastern Tibetan Plateau in a region known as Kam. Not long after that, she worked for the China Exploration and Research Society, restoring Tibetan temples and probing Silk Road ruins. In nineteen ninety six, Dr. Logan was named Woman Explorer of the Year. The following year she started Calm Aid Foundation, a nonprofit that operated for fourteen years, assisting people in eastern Tibet with their needs for education, health care, cultural preservation, and economic opportunity. In twenty oh seven, Logan started a third career when she took a job with the US federal government as a cleaner upper of radioactive contamination at the Hanford site in Washington State. Later, she moved to a different agency where her job is to stop federal contractors from gouging American taxpayers. In her spare time, she still teaches karate and continues to advance the cause of assistance to Tibet through publication of books and articles that raise awareness of the needs of Tibetans. She now holds the rank of fifth degree black belt and teaches at Boulder Shotokan karate. In 2020, Responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, Logan began producing a series of training videos called Karate at Home, Alone. Logan is the author of Among Warriors and Tibetan Rescue. She is an accomplished public speaker, having delivered invited lectures at Columbia University, Wellesley College, Royal Geographic Society of Hong Kong, Asia Society, Explorers Club, Foreign Correspondence Clubs in Hong Kong and Beijing, and others. Am Logan. Welcome to the mystical positivist.
1: Thank you, Stuart. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Well, I will begin with our usual first question to first-time guests, and um, that is an invitation to you to cast your mind back to youth and childhood, and focus, if you will, on on any relevant incidences, experiences, etc., from youth and childhood that, in retrospect, you could say were harbingers of the work that you describe in your book, Compassion Mandala.
1: Wow, that's a tough one. Um, I had a very ordinary Midwestern childhood. Um, I remember one of my neighbors, uh, her her family moved Away to Colorado, and I thought mountains. That's very different and exotic place. I I never thought that fate would take me to the mountains. Um, uh, but perhaps the 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 harbinger was in my father's National Geographic magazines. I think we all, many of us, had fathers with National Geographic magazines that that he left lying around the house, and I used to page through those and look at those pictures and. And uh, and think about exploring the world at least visually. Uh, I never knew I would explore it literally.
2: Well, in the book, you uh, you you say that, uh, um, and this is this I can confirm because I too grew I too grew grew up in a Chicago suburb, so uh, verticality is not a feature um, that Illinois is noted for. And uh, in in the book, you start off by saying that uh, you um, had a thing about going up. And um, so, um, although I I dare say there's a difference between mountains and climbing trees or something like that, but perhaps uh, that was at least something along the lines of what would take you to Tibet later.
1: I think from uh, from climbing up furniture and then climbing up jungle gyms and then climbing up trees, it was just a natural extension to go to Tibet. Uh, sometimes wonder <laughs> why more people aren't there.
0: Got it. Well, one of the things that uh, struck me is, and uh, for obviously listeners wouldn't know this, but uh, you and I know each other because we actually went to college together, and one of the things that. I recall of you from that time, which is now getting to be quite a while ago for us, but uh, was that you had this abiding dedication to Shotokan uh, Karate. And I guess I, I'm curious because in a way there's a connection that you, you both draw in the book to that background and that passion and that, and that practice. But was that something that you discovered in going to college or was there something uh, in your past that sort of uh, uh, kind of made you think, drew you towards that?
1: You know, there was nothing whatsoever in my past. And um, it was purely arriving at Caltech and then seeing that a bunch of upperclassmen who I regarded as cool were doing this, this martial arts thing. And they were talking about the instructor and how amazing he was and how hard it was. And, and uh, you know, all the, the the fear and struggle that it entailed and uh, whether it was peer pressure or whether there was something that, that flipped a switch in my head uh, about just the practice itself. I I showed up um, in the spring of my freshman year and uh, I'm still doing it today. Literally I've been to a practice today. Um, And uh, so it's been more than 40 years. So, uh, again, like very few harbingers, I think my, my parents were probably flummoxed uh, as, as to the direction my life was taking. And, uh, uh, but at least they could take comfort in the fact that I was getting a degree in engineering. And so that was respectable.
2: Mm-hmm. Little <laughs> well, this, this is interesting. So perhaps you can, you can just, um, because I'm unfamiliar with this particular martial art that you're um, referring to, perhaps you can sort of, Describe it for our listeners.
1: Sure. Well, it's a, a Japanese martial art. It's called Shotokan Karate, and there are a number of schools that that identify as Shotokan Karate. So this is a particular one with a particular uh, shihan or or master instructor who came from Japan as one one of the the earliest Japanese uh, martial arts instructors who who came to the United States originally to get a, a degree in political science at USC. And uh, wound up being sort of inveigled into teaching, and then uh, ultimately got a position at with the PE department at Caltech, which was a, a quite a reach for any university to sort of bring in this this very strange sport that was unlike any traditional American sport. But he w- was hired, and uh, and so that is how I began. I began with um, uh, really one of the most wi- highly regarded martial arts instructors. Today, it's Tomu Oshima um, at Caltech as a freshman, uh, just barely 19 years old. Hmm. And that, that martial art, the, uh, the karate uh, means empty hand, uh, literally in Japanese. And so it is a, a fighting art that entails use of hands and fists, uh, or I should say fists and feet uh, to fight without weapons generally and um, uh, pretty much anything goes, but we're particularly uh, good at, at punching and kicking uh, and that's uh, that sounds like something you could pick up in you know a few months, but actually it's forty years, and I still haven't come to the end of it
0: so in that uh, practice um, you, you you speak uh, at least in part of in the the book about a spiritualism or spirituality of the body and i'm interested because again i there's a to me a a, a clear line between this and the uh uh compassion mandala as we'll get into in a, uh, in a little bit but maybe you could speak a little bit about that sense of body spirituality
1: well, I've never heard it called that, and um, that's interesting that you say that, so I might have to meditate on that a bit, but for me where uh, where they where it comes together really is in the idea of physical training to bring out some new kind of of mind. Uh, so repetition of physical movements makes you more skillful in those physical movements, but it also changes. Something about your the neural connections between your your mind and your body and your breathing as it being one of the primary things in the middle of that picture, and that um, that is something that uh, also is fostered by facing a, a very scary opponent and going into an engagement knowing that this opponent has the right way by stepping into the room, I've given him the right to come punch me in the stomach or the face or whatever the rules have, have said. And so that's uh, a very real, very visceral fear that is, you know, that we don't experience much in our modern lives, but when you do uh, put yourself in that situation, I think you find this kind of, Brain start to shift around and things change, and um, sometimes uh, you know you look at the more ordinary problems of life and you say, "Well, that that's not so scary." <laughs> I faced so and so; he was coming after me with a strong attack, and and I managed to to engage with him and and give him a counterattack. And uh, if I could do that, you know, I could do all this other hard stuff. It's not so hard.
0: Well, one of the closest tangents i have i guess to that and it's a, a distant tangent is that i study the japanese bamboo flute the shakuhachi with a japanese teacher and have been doing that for probably over 20 years and he uses a lot of analogies from martial arts in terms of the readiness for practice or the readiness for playing is one in which the body is activated it's it's tense is not the right word because we tend to think of tension as this unconscious lockedness but alert ready active i think is the way and in playing a note you know he makes the analogy that if you let let your the energy of your ribs for instance uh drop then uh your opponent can come at you then that's the that's the point where you you lose the uh thread of the moment uh when you're you lose, you take your attention from your body. So I'm wondering, you know, that, that, that's how I sort of understand it or how, how that lands for me. Is that, does that resonate with you in terms of your practice?
1: Well, I think so, um, although I, I'm going to use different words. Uh, so my husband studies Zen and uh, he has done quite a bit of sitting meditation a lot, you know, many, many hundreds or thousands of hours. And it's all about, you know, sort of letting go of your of your brain and kind of existing in this or I should say your mind and existing in this zone where you're not uh, distracted and di- attached and desiring of things and thinking about, you know, what you're going to do next and all these hundreds of millions of things that pass through our brains every day, where you just kind of let that go away. And I've always been a terrible meditator. So I'm, you know, would never make a very good Zen student, but I find when I go to face an opponent, that same thing happens. I mean, you have to be so very in the moment when you are facing somebody coming to hurt you. (laughs) And, and, um, Usually, there are rules that that guide you know how and when they can hurt you, but there's nearly always some element of potential hurt that's out there and so when you are focused on 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 getting into your opponent and uh, one of our more advanced practices has is not about just like producing some kind of defense and then making a counter attack it's about getting into the opponent. As they've decided that they're they're going to come, so you basically interrupt their attack with your own, uh, um, just breaking into their space and and completely uh, dismantling whatever it was they they had in mind before it even happens. So um, to be able to catch that timing is so uh, it's it's one of those elusive you know snatch this this stone from my hand grasshopper kind of things that that um if you have any any uh distractions in your in your head they will not let that then it won't happen so you you really have to let, learn to let go of all that stuff and be completely in the moment and and i i don't know if it sounds hard or not but when somebody is actually coming to physically hurt you it actually is uh, your all of those survival instincts come and uh you can be so completely engaged in in that that event that person uh that is um not so difficult to uh forget about you know well how am i going to get back home after this and what's for dinner and you know is my spouse going to be upset with me for staying at practice so long and all, all those more mundane details quickly fall away so that is something that i i very much enjoy and um Maybe that's the the root of my addiction is, is being able to just really be in that moment
0: well it's interesting we we uh a few months ago uh, spoke to someone on the show who was uh, uh in the corrections uh, uh industry but he had also was a martial martial artist and he had written a book about the um essentially the the sensory or the reptile brain to use that metaphor uh, uh, coming awake and actually engaging with the, uh, our consciousness was part of what he saw that practice to be that. And that was actually very critical in uh, corrections because with uh, in the uh, corrections world, you know, you are often confronted with unexpected threats that came out of nowhere and didn't, conformed to the rules you're describing. So there was really more of a uh, complete element of the unknown. And to be able to function in that space required this kind of clarity that you're describing or this ability to maintain that presence. And by maintaining that presence, actually, you could forestall or keep the unexpected actually from happening because people would sense that.
1: Well, um, in a very different way, I experienced this uh, sense of of you know survival of the fittest uh, in a in a in a very primitive way. When in 1995 I was in Tibet doing some work out there, and uh, I got attacked by a pack of Tibetan dogs. And um, I was walking around the outside of a monastery where I had a team. We were doing some work, and there were uh, a pack of, of Mongol dogs who habitually hung out. In the monastery because the monks would give them food. Uh, also because they uh, also took nourishment from the effluent monastery toilet, which came out on the ground right outside the monastery. I was walking past that and, and the dogs either thought me uh, you know, a tasty morsel or they thought me a, a threat for getting in between them and their horse. Anyway, they, they attacked me um, a whole bunch of them uh, from behind, which is something I tell my students all the time, always be aware of what's going on behind you, because that's where the smart attacker will come. So in that instance, I I met, I I heard them somehow, I turned around, and they were, you know, already trying to get on me, and I started, I was wearing heavy hiking boots, and I started kicking, and, and, uh, and then they pushed me back, uh, and I fell on the ground on my back, and I was, Uh, bicycling my feet and yelling bloody murder and screaming. And and some monks came out luckily and started throwing stones at the dogs and drove them away. Well, when, when all that was done and I was like limping back into the monastery, I realized I had a couple of big uh, puncture wounds in my legs from their teeth. And um, so, you know, there's a sort of a medical story that follows, but uh, what I experienced was something that most humans at least in the United States rarely ever experience which is the feeling of being prey, you know, the feeling of of uh you're not at the top of the food chain uh sister and uh you could be somebody's lunch and um th- that's a feeling that was very powerful and frightening and um kind of life altering I would say because you know, the the omnipotence of the human being is something, at least in the white privileged world, we take for granted and uh exercise every day. And then suddenly when you lose it, it's it's quite a shock to the system. So that's um that's another kind of fighting and another kind of way to sort of take you out of, you know, your your distractions is to suddenly become prey. And I I, I don't recommend it if you can avoid it, but uh it, it's perhaps another, you know, little step on my growth curve um in the martial arts world and as a human being got
2: it so um i think it's time perhaps yeah. to get into yes. the your book compassion andala yeah, and I, uh um i don't know how you'd like to start it i mean uh, you know i've uh, you've already mentioned that you went um to college you and Stuart, Stuart went to college together and um Perhaps you want to just sketch from there um, how you ended up in Tibet the
0: first time. It's a long way from Pasadena.
1: It's a long way from Pasadena. Uh, So I uh, had, I guess, because of those National Geographics, I had this latent, you know, desire to travel. And um, through the martial arts, I, I paid one, I did one trip to Japan, and that was like opening doors in in my mind, like, wow, I I can really do this. I can go to a place where they don't speak English and I can manage and I can get around, I can see things. And it's also different and people are different. And like the whole assumptions that underpin civilization seem to be a little bit different over there. Uh, Wow. I want more of this. So when I finished up my graduate school uh, in 1986, um, I booked myself a long trip that included a stop in Nepal. And I did some trekking in Nepal. And while I was in Nepal, I heard about the Kambas or the, the people of the Eastern Tibetan plateau who are famous for their fighting uh, spirit, their fighting skills, um, and as heroes in in the Tibetan world for uh, resisting Chinese occupation of Tibet. And the Kamba rebellion is one of the big stories of, of, uh, what occurred after, uh, the arrival of, of the communist party in Tibet. So I heard about that. And as a martial artist and, you know, maybe seeking, uh, some expression of my martial arts practice in manifesting out in the real world, uh, the idea that, that there might be some actual warriors out there that I could go see and, and, you know, maybe learn something from was just extraordinary and just mind blow- blowing in every way. So um, I came back and I I worked in L.A. for a few years at UCLA, and I I managed to wangle a travel grant uh, through my affiliation with uh, California Institute of Technology to go to China and and look for these warriors. So I did that, and that was the the genesis of my first book, which is called Among Warriors, and it was published by... I was very fortunate. I got an actual book deal and, and um, I was a first time writer and that book did pretty well. And, um, but I wasn't through with, with Tibet and calm, the region where the Khambas live. I just couldn't get enough of that. Like uh, every day I was like, how do I get back there? How do I get back there? So I began volunteering for this other outfit that uh, was based first in LA and later in Hong Kong. And, um, Doing this uh, monastery uh, repair and conservation project, and that was how I wound up at this monastery where the dogs were that I told you uh. about. So that that was what brought me there. And so I was there in in the, in the mid and the late nineties uh, doing that work. But as I was working on monasteries, and you know that was valuable work; it was much appreciated and it was needed. Um, I couldn't help but notice the incredible poverty uh, of the region and. Um, on my, the last visit to the monastery where we were working, um, the local people said, let's, I want to, we want to take you over to this school. There's this charity school that's been created and we're, you know, teaching kids in these, in this village and, um, you know, we'd like to show you. So I said, sure. Uh, and they took me and it was, it would involve going down the valley and then, and then, uh, driving a bit and then riding horses up, the, up under the mountains again. And here was this village and a local uh, guy who had done well for himself. He was an official in, in a, a county town, some ways away. He had this house in this village and he had uh, allowed them to turn this house into a school. So they had one teacher who was this really old uh, guy who was like an ex-monk or something. And he was teaching Tibetan language to the kids and they had 30 or so kids who were just village kids and who had no, There's no other school there. This was the only school they had in that village. So he was teaching, but he, his uh, breadth of, of knowledge was really kind of narrow. He just knew kind of Buddhism and Tibetan language and, uh, and the kids and, and the parents really wanted to get something more, you know, they wanted mathematics, they wanted science, they wanted Chinese language, very useful out there. You know, history. They wanted uh, a larger amount of education than what they were getting, and they said, "Well, for about seventy-five dollars a month, and of course in Chinese currency, um, you know, we can hire a teacher. You know, can you can you help us get this money? Seventy-five dollars a month. That's all. That's it. That'll do it." And they said, "Yeah." It's like, "Well, yeah. I'll see what I can do." I think I can, you know, so I went, went home and I, you know, I had an email mailing list and sent this message out, you know, does anybody want to put the teacher at this school in this place? The village was called Autry. And, and sure enough, somebody stepped forward and uh, she started sending money and I knew how to do wire transfers in, in China and stuff like that. So, uh, and I was going there, um, or I had people there <laughs> So we started sending the money and they got this other teacher. And then suddenly these kids were suddenly their, their knowledge was going from very narrow to, to much broader. And they were really understanding the world a lot better uh, and were better prepared to go further in their education. So that was, uh, you know, $75 a month. Like, how could you not do that? That's just so, so easy. Right. And, and as I, I started to, uh, I, and I had created my own nonprofit by that time, partly for the work I was already doing, but also because I wanted to try to do other things. And this, uh, the school project kind of fit squarely into that other thing category of what I wanted to do, because I could see the needs were, were enormous. Um,
0: so that was the birth of uh, Com Aid.
1: That was the birth of Aid foundation and, um, when I originally, uh, when I was first drafting uh, Compassion Mandala, I started with the story of the Autry Village and the, and the yeah. teacher. School, and I had various editors who looked at this and said, well, you know, we really think you, could, you should start it with something else. So I, I do start with something else. But that was really the genesis of, of, you know, how things just began to kind of mushroom from there. Because uh, when you tell rich people in the West that they can actually do something in Tibet to help Tibetans, you know, which is a, this is a problem that most people kind of feel like this is a mountain, you know, we can't even start to climb helping Tibet. Are you, are you kidding? That's a very hard problem. And I'm like, well, no, actually I, I can do this and I can have, I have these other projects. And you know, if you can afford uh, $650 a year, I can put a kid in middle school in yeah. in middle school. And so we, grew various projects and programs. And, and, uh, from there education was first, but healthcare followed quickly.
0: Yeah. Well, before, before we get into that, I, I want to take a step back just for listeners, because one of the things I found very interesting in the book that I really didn't know, uh, uh, was this, the ethnographic layout of Tibet versus the political layout of Tibet and what com what com really represents because, um, uh, uh, as I was reading the book, I just kept flashing back to the map, and, uh, and this place became more and more real, which before uh, I probably had very little uh, uh, knowledge about. Yes,
1: yeah, so I'm glad you raised that, because that is something that's not well understood in the West, is ethnographic Tibet, which is people who consider themselves Tibetan and, and um more often than not, they worship as Tibetan Buddhists, and they speak some sort of Tibetan language or dialect. And uh, they are cover a much larger area than that egg shaped blob that you see on maps that is marked Tibet Autonomous Region as a, a part of China. And so they spill over into neighboring provinces, including Yunnan, Qinghai, Gansu. Uh, and Sichuan. And Sichuan has somewhere around a million and a half or two million Tibetans in it by now, Uh, mostly divided between two prefectures. And they're all living in high altitude, right? This is not like Tibetans living in the lowlands. This is Tibetans living in a a very Tibetan environment. So it's high mountains uh, and yaks and barley farming and and uh, monasteries and stupas all over the landscape, prayer flags, all those sorts of things we associate with Tibet are found in, in these places, even though they're in other quote unquote provinces. So the the part of, and, and Kham is considered to be one of the three ancient provinces of greater Tibet or ethnographic Tibet. And it is, uh, it covers both that Sichuan piece but it also it also is uh part of, of tibet autonomous region so there's kambas in tibet autonomous region but it's a lot harder to work in tibet autonomous region because you have to jump through a lot of hoops and get special permits to even as a foreigner to even visit there whereas the Sichuan side was like really open um i mean you could travel around and uh hang out with people and um most of the time that I went there, which was a lot, you know, three or four times a year for between 15 and 20 years, depending on where you you draw the lines. um, I went with a tourist visa. Hmm. That's all you need. And it's still all you need. So you, you can go to, you know, greater Tibet or ethnographic Tibet, you know, with just a tourist visa. You won't get to see Lhasa. That's true. But you will get to see Tibet. So, Um, so I was working in the Sichuan part and Sichuan lies to the east of Tibet autonomous region. And, um, a bit like Colorado, it's uh, high mountains on the West side of the province. And then it drops very steeply. And then there's the the major city, uh, Chengdu, which has something like 13 million people in it now, an international airport, you know, McDonald's and all the things we associate with urban China, um, that's all in the eastern part of this, of Sichuan Province, and the western part is basically Tibet. So that's where I did my work. And, uh,
0: so, so the uh, Kampas, the warriors uh, of uh, uh, the traditional warriors, were from that that Kham region. So they yeah. they were the, like the eastern defenses that were of uh, of of uh, the larger Tibet.
1: Yeah, and uh, the, the suffix "pa" means person, usually male person. So, Kamba is a person from kam.
0: So, um, one of the other things I guess I want to uh, frame out here, because I think it's the kind of the architecture of the book, is that you raise a very interesting question about compassion. And uh, you refer to a compassion mandala. And I think the, I guess the way I would take the perspective that you're offering is that, you know, compassion isn't just a a feeling state of, you know, of of well-wishing. There's a action. And that action to be effective has to kind of extend out through several different dimensions. Otherwise, your actions are not going to bear fruit. And so that I see the book as this, as this, you know, discussion of all of these different ways in which Aid would try to provide assistance for people in, uh, in a multitude of different ways in order to create a lasting change.
1: Um, yeah, I think you've pretty much nailed it. Although I will say there are NGOs that just work in, in one dimension, you know, one gate of the mandala, like healthcare, for example. And, and do an exceptionally great job of it and uh, lift people up in terms of health without, you know, working also in education and job training and those all those other ways to do it. Um, and they still make a very valuable contribution. Uh, however, you know, you have to say, well, there is other work to do, and hopefully somebody will do it, uh, if not the, the NGO, and, you know, and that works too. That's another another way to go about it. But as I saw during my work, things are so interrelated. So, for example, how are you going to lift, uh, improve people's health if they don't understand some really basic things like cleaning your teeth is important to health. It's not just to make your teeth look pretty, which is what some uh, Tibetans in nom- nomad areas, this was the idea they had, you know. So they they, you know... Try to gently, you know, talk to them about uh, it's actually for your health. You need clean teeth in order to be healthy. And there's a, a ton of sort of knowledge areas that that support health that people living in, in these very remote regions of, of the planet just have no exposure to. They have, without an education, they're not going to get any exposure either. So, education is really central to a lot of different things. And, so that's why I say that all these different areas are entangled. You know, you can have very healthy, very educated people, but if there are no job opportunities for them, what's going to happen? Well, they're going to have a tough time. You know, they can't support their families. Uh, they're they're going to not be able to achieve all the things that, that they're capable of. And, you know, I'm really all about like, let's make the maximum out of every human being. Well, let's let every human being fulfill all their ambitions and their dreams uh, even if it's uh, you know maybe not what we expect, like you know a, a Tibetan who wants to be a policeman for for a job, and I've known several who did. Um, I'm I'm not going to stand in their way, even though we maybe have some negative perceptions about the police in Tibet. Uh, fortunately, there's far more of them that want to become uh, teachers and doctors, and and uh, also they many who are working in the government to uh, do what. Government officials do, which is to just basically keep the keep things in order and in a place, and keep uh, you know run the government. And you you want competent, caring, invested people to do those jobs too. So yeah. um, everybody's got a dream. We should all be able to live it.
2: Got it. So um, I, I guess I, uh, I'd like you to speak a little bit to the the journey to being someone who was so motivated to be in action, to offer compassionate aid of many different types to people. From the earlier um, Pamela Logan, who was drawn to, oh, let's go see this, these, um, these warriors and and wouldn't that be cool and it's in the mountains which is cool do you, do you see what i'm saying it's it's yeah. like there, there's, a, there, there's a there's a there's a there's there's a personal what's that
0: an igniting of something
2: yeah well or 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 even just an evolution or something i'm i'm not i'd like to hear you speak speak to that question
1: well, you know, I started out as a tourist, right? And I did a lot of hitchhiking and get it going to places, you know, kind of in the gray area of legality of what tourists can do. And um, it was also beautiful, you know. But I didn't stay very long at any one place. And later, when I started working on the monastery project, I did stay for a long time. And I got to know the, you know, the monks at the, at the monasteries where we were working, and you know, to a lesser extent, the, the neighboring people who lived in in the in the region and uh you know like the the uh the abbot of of one of the monasteries had a a bum leg he had like broken his leg in some really bad way as a youth and uh perhaps that's why he wound up in the monastery but anyway he had this really terrible limp and and you know clearly wasn't very comfortable and um and nor was he very, you know, mobile either. He could walk, but it was it was difficult. And and so, you know, I had to wonder, like, well, if there had been proper medical intervention at the time of this accident, whatever it was that occurred, well, maybe he'd be a much different and much different situation. And, and not that there's anything wrong with being a monk, but you know, maybe he really what he really might have been was, you know, a lawyer. That's okay. <laughs> so, people, and you stop seeing uh, seeing a place as just like this kind of tourist picture postcard. But you really get to know people and their face and the paths they've taken and the paths they didn't take because of circumstances that were quite beyond their control. It starts to get personal, and um, you know, kids who drop out of school after third grade, like that's not okay. You know, because I, I, it's just not okay. So. Um, it was part selfishness because I, I I just wanted to keep going back there, you know. But like, my God, there's so much to do, and actually, it's quite affordable. And and there are supporters out in the West who want to pay for it. So uh, it it was just every every signal in my life said just continue forward with this this nonprofit work, this aid work. It was uh, it, it was like. I could hardly remember when I was an engineer doing experiments in a lab. Um, it, it just, that, that work seemed not as important by any stretch as what I was doing for these people.
0: Well, one of the other things that struck me about the, the stories you relate in the book is the reality of the place. And what I mean by that is that, um, In the West, there's an idealized picture of Tibet, and uh, our interface to Tibet is often through the religion. And if you're interested in the the, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, there's certainly monks and teachers who have come to the West, and we we see that. But what we don't see as much is just the day-to-day reality of the people. Uh, outside of the religious context, and and you describe that so beautifully in so many places in the book of the real struggles for people, and and the uh, the challenges of of modernity creeping in with the, uh, the the Chinese presence, but modernity creeping in can be a good thing too in terms of improving the quality of people's lives. So I'm just interested how you you know uh you speak to that to some degree, because, uh, in fact, you would have to process applicants for uh, your uh, a com aid who would come in starry eyed with these kinds of notions. And uh, I'm just interested from your perspective, how you how you have the reality of Tibet contrasted to the Western storybook picture of Tibet.
1: Well, when you talk about monks, uh, you know, our our perception of what Tibetan monks are, are highly educated and enlightened people who are living a life, you know, purely directed towards spiritual values and spiritual activities. And that is true for quite a few monks. uh, And, and there's some, you know, remarkable individuals. I mean, just uh, completely inspiring and exceptional scholars and teachers in the monastic community. And some of them, do make it here to the United States. Some of them are still in Tibet. Some of them many of them are in India. But what you, what you don't know is, is that behind that there are monasteries and, and, and this is, has been changing in recent years. So I have to couch this a little carefully, but when I was working out there, you regularly saw lots of young boys in the monastery. And sometimes they would be there for just a few months of study But far more often, they were permanent members of the community, and so they had been uh, given by their parents to go to go be part of of the monastic community as a kind of offering, as as a way of bringing you know virtue and honor and benefit to all sentient beings and to particularly that family, because parents are many many parents very traditional parents, particularly uh, people who live in in the nomadic areas who are herders, are are incredibly devoted Buddhists. Um, so they they bring their sons, you know, and they leave them there and the monastery takes them in. And uh, if they're kids, they don't usually show up in the roles. So it was uh, problematic for the Chinese government to enforce a rule that said you had to be uh, of a certain age in order to join a monastery. And it was either 16 or 18, one of the two. Um, so that rule was not enforced and there were tons of kids there. Um, and I don't know about you, but like, if I had a, you know, a child, I, I I wouldn't send that child into a monastery, I would want that child, if they want to pursue a religious life, they should make that decision when they're older, and they're, they understand all of the, the trade offs, you know what they'd be giving up they need to understand that before making that decision. But it's like completely normal for kids to be just be brought there uh, and and left without any say in the decision at all. So that is, you know, that's always troubled me. And yet the very uh, vocal supporters of, of Tibet and of of, of Tibetan Buddhists that you, that you find in the U S don't really seem to see that as a problem. So, you know, this is kind of where I, diverge from, from that path uh, of being, you know, involved with access here. That practice is is a good idea. And uh, the other thing is that a a very large number of monks in these monasteries are actually not literate. They are uh, not that educated in anything. Um, And I know this because it was my practice for years. Whenever I would go into a monastery for the first time, Uh, I would look for the nearest mock and I'd say, can you write down the name of this monastery in Tibetan in my notebook? Because I I learned to read Tibetan. I studied the language. I studied the alphabet and how to write and everything. So I I could read it if they could just write it for me. Um, And it's, you know, there's the Chinese name is sort of easy to find out. That might be shown on maps and, you know, but the Tibetan name, not so easy. I always want somebody to write it down for me, but rarely could the first mock I ever, I asked, ever do that like not even write down the name of his monastery in my notebook so uh you know the first few times that happened i i didn't think too much of it but as it just repeated over and over and over again i'm like wow what's going on here and part of it is 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 that uh calligraphy is very highly valued so you have your calligraphy is kind of subpar write down so there is that um, but still, you know, not even the name of your monastery—you can't even write that nicely. Like, really? So there's a lot of of monks who are pursuing what you could call kind of the the social obligation uh, to the the, the public of uh, basically supporting the folk religion, which is about, you know, you've got to have the ceremonies, you've got to have the chanting, you've got to blow the horns and bang the, the bells and the cymbals and, and the drums. And, and, and people want all this ritual and they want to know that those prayers are being said. That's extremely important. And one of the, the terrible things that occurred during the Cultural Revolution and the time before and for for a little time after was a complete shutdown of all these Kinds of activities, and it, it just tore their people's hearts up that these these prayers were not being said, and the, the monks could not do these rituals. They, they just felt like the you know their the sky had fallen for them. So it's extremely important to have people do this, whether or not they really can understand the words that they're saying um, or the you know the, the thought behind it. Uh, that is perhaps not critical to just meeting the public's need for these activities. So it's, uh, you know, the the people that we meet in the West, the teachers that make it out into America, uh, they are the high level literate, very, very smart, you know, and exceptional characters. And then there's, you know, sort of the what what in chinese they they would call I'm sorry, I've used Chinese words that might piss people off, but Lao Baixing, which means old hundred names, which is basically the common people, so there's monks that are basically common monks and they they don't have the same set of skills as some of these higher level people do so you see as as you observe the folk religion in Tibet, and I've had years and years in which to do this and in many different monasteries and settings is that there is a lot of what, you know, kind of looks to me like superstition. Um, you know, you make your offerings of the tiny bills to the altar and you touch this Buddhist tummy or you rub this Buddha's head or you crouch and you walk underneath the statue. Uh, you, you burn an effigy. You, uh, you know, there's all these different rituals which have a lot of meaning in the Tibetan cultural context, but I don't think there would be uh, find much of an audience in the West because they 're really just kind of maybe a little too ritualistic without that that obvious underpinning of of philosophy and spirituality it 's just people doing what people do because it makes them feel good mm-hmm. so that's that 's the part that hasn 't made it out here and um So that's where, that's one reason why I don't really call myself a Tibetan Buddhist. I I call myself kind of a lackadaisical Zen Buddhist, but um, I've really never been a subscriber of of Tibetan Buddhism. And and part of it is because I've just perhaps seen a little too much. I I know a little too much. (laughs) Um, Not to say I don't respect the enormous achievements and especially some of the Great leaders that have come out of that tradition. There's uh, just some phenomenal individuals that I've met and I've worked with.
0: Uh, well, but- yeah, and, that, and that's a that was another aspect of this uh, uh, insight into like the lives of the monks, which is the rinpoches that were in charge of the monasteries and the and the tolkus who were. Uh, within that religion, the reincarnation of a, a teacher in the past who is incarnated again to be a religious leader, they were multifaceted individuals as well. That they, I think it was a Gelsen Rinpoche who was a, a member of the uh, uh, Communist Party and would go to the, the meetings on, and use that position in order to uh, be of service to his community. Or Minyak Rinpoche, who was a you know a very influential teacher for preservation, they were playing these cultural roles. They weren't just dispensing uh, the uh, philosophy or the teachings or the practice. They 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 were functionaries in the culture.
1: Well, the, those two individuals in particular. has quite actually a, a number of of uh, tulku's. Uh, in that age bracket and they're now in their 70s most of them that would have gotten their religious training uh, when they in, in the in the 60s 70s but this was a time when the monasteries were shut down so they did not get that religious training and uh, and yet they were still tukus right you, it's like in your dna once you're a tuku you you can't Say no thanks I don't want to be one anymore <laughs> um and and both of those individuals by the way got married um, and uh minnette has has a, a daughter who's really really exceptional herself uh, and so the the living a purely religious life that was not a a path that was open to them, but they were they had that position they had that power, and they also had the desire both of them. To really serve their people, which is uh, that 's not always the case I mean if you 're a Tulku and, and there 's not many who just kind of kind of rest on their laurels and sit back and enjoy all the the adoration and, and the the Bennies, uh, most of them do seem to have a, a strong sense of of, uh, of of purpose of conviction that they they, they should be impacting the world in some way they've been given this authority, this power, this, this uh, respect um, almost without earning it. And they, they do study hard, so I won't say they don't earn it. (laughs) They do earn it, but at the same time, um, you know, perhaps any child who had that great of an education would, would achieve as much. I don't know. There's a lot of kind of mystical uh, sides to, how they picked these boys, and now it's gotten very political, so I don't, I don't know what you know what the future holds, but in the past they they seem to have a knack these selection uh, committees that would go out and, in the countryside and look for the reincarnation of of the tulku who just died. they would go look for his reincarnation and they would find some child and and bring him back to the monastery often with a a, a parent or a sibling uh, in tow and then give them this incredible education and, and just just drown them in love. I mean, just just the, the amount of love that these kids get is just extraordinary, you know, and it's kind of like my dog. My dog experiences nothing but love in this world. So he's just very open-hearted and very giving to everybody he meets. And so these kids are kind of like that. And um, they end up achieving, often awesome, achieving really tremendous things.
2: Well, thank you. So, um, so let's get back to how, um, CamAid sort of developed because you, you have outlined already earlier in the conversation, you know, sort of the, the Genesis. Um, and, um, I, I think it's, I don't know if it's a testimony to your energy or to your, um, invoking energy or eliciting energy from others to support what you were doing, but it quickly becomes, it seems from the book, quite a thing, quite a project. And, and I'm wondering how, I mean, I already get from, from just hearing you speak about it, that, that you, you were just really invested personally in this, in this project, and that in itself can can sort of carry a lot of other people along. Is that was that your view of it, or do you think it was more a more general wish to be of service that got that attracted people to your project?
1: You well, know, it was a it was a mix of reasons, and we had people who did nothing but write checks, and um, and and that was fabulous. They. They trusted me enough. They trusted what we were doing enough to just support us financially. And of course, no NGO can operate without a few people like that. Um, But we had also a lot of volunteers um, who came out and did work in the field. And so that was really harnessing uh, my objectives to the appeal of Tibet as a destination. So we did, especially in the early years, we did what uh, some would have termed derisively would have termed uh, NGO tourism, where we had a lot of uh, projects in scattered locations and they were all kind of beautiful. Of course, most every place is beautiful out there, but they involved often, you know, these rather long journeys of several days overland travel, uh, sometimes even on horseback, but usually by car or bus. So that was part of the appeal was just to see a lot of Tibet and just to to you know put your feet on the ground and get to know people and um experience it in a way that a, a tourist never went never did or never would so we had quite a few volunteers and um and we also had, you know, in charge of the programs and um, who invested a tremendous amount of time energy and money to, to do this work and i think that Underline one that is a, a concern that we all have about what is going on. Are people there are they okay? You know, we want them to be okay. We think it's a beautiful place. They have this tremendous faith tradition that is so important for a lot of folks. And uh, naturally, uh, we hear in, uh, in the West about concerns about human rights and religious freedom. So, you know, our it speaks to, I think, particularly to Americans, but it speaks to people all over the world um, that, uh, you know, what is going on there and can anything be done? And so when I show up and I say, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, something can be done and here's what I'm doing. And, um, and by the way, volunteers for a, a project you know this fall where we're going to you know repair some uh, schoolhouses and dormitories for for kids and teachers so they have a better place to live. And uh, people really signed up for that. I mean, it just it it's a worthy cause and it comes with an adventure in the same package. So I I never lacked for volunteers. I I, w- I could always find volunteers to do things and and. Far more often than not, they'd pay their own way to get out there. So that was one benefit of doing work in Tibet that you you might not have if you were trying to do work in Sri Lanka, say, or you know, Madagascar.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: so there was that. And then, um, you know, once you get there, like you, you you leave a bit of your heart there for sure. It's just uh, such a, a rapturous place, and. The people can be so kind. And um, and I include in the people, I include the uh, the Chinese who live there, of course, many, um, and government officials. We had some terrific partnerships with government officials. And, you know, not every government official was uh, a joy to work with. And some I just avoided, you know, I avoided because I knew they weren't. Um, but when you start to, once you meet one, he or she either to do another, and then another, and then another, and so you kind of make this web of of uh, network that uh, these are people you can trust, these are people you can work with, these are people that you can you know wire money to, and they will do what they're supposed to do with it. And um, sometimes we had some disappointments in there, as described in the book. I've certainly encountered corruption out there, but uh, I have to say that we could not have achieved anything close to what we did achieve uh without the the trust and and support by so many of our partners in in the government there were a, 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 there was an enormous uh i don't want to say there was a lot of like outright assistance but there was a lot of sort of um not getting in the way <laughs> mm-hmm. there was a lot of not getting in the way and that is uh Major, and you know, if you try to do work in a developing country, and and everybody's struggling, and everybody's poor, and everybody's needy, and um, you know, it's it's pretty hard to avoid people who want to just get a little payola to to let you do your project. And uh, we in, managed to avoid that to a large degree because of the goodness of of so many folks out there.
2: So, so do you think? Um... How do, you, how do you think, I mean, and this is a sort of a general question, but I'm wondering how you think you were viewed over time. At the beginning, once you got CommAid really going strong, I mean, I'm sure there were different people with different views of you and, and your project, um, because people always have different views. <laughs> but... Um, but I'm wondering how, how, how it felt to you that that you you that what you were bringing to Tibet landed with people living there, the all the different types of people living there.
1: You know, it it has to be said that any American or Westerner, but especially American, who shows up in Tibetan and says, yeah, wanted you know, I want to do a development project, and, you know, I've brought, you know, I have I have $10,000 here, and I want to do this project, and, uh, you know, this uh, Tibetan I know in America, I know this other Tibetan here in this village, and so we're going to do it in this village, and there is a tremendous trust hurdle you have to get over to even start, right? Mm-hmm. And in the early years, if you read my second book, Tibetan Rescue, it talks about some of the minders that I had who traveled with me, who, you know, from the police department um, and watching me to make sure I, I wasn't like secretly going to be out there like, you know, buying arms for another combo rebellion and, and making, you know, making trouble that the, the Chinese certainly didn't want. So there's a lot of distrust of any foreigner that shows up there, and that's why periodically uh, they stop uh, tourism, foreign tourism, you know, completely. They stop it the cold and, you know, you can't go there at all, especially in Tibet Autonomous Region, that's the um, most uh, sensitive area. So you, you got to get past that and even even to get, you know, off of go on, on, on to the first <laughs> of any project you might want to do. And I had a great advantage there, an advantage that few people have, which is I had been working for this basically Chinese-oriented organization called the China Exploration and Research Society that was based in Hong Kong and led by a Chinese. And he was a very charismatic guy who made a lot of friends, including Tibetan friends, in Kham. And I did the monastery project with him and for him. And so his connection sort of carried me into that project and and protected me or allowed me, I don't want to say protected, but allowed me to do that work and um, with minders. And so I had that kind of long audition period, right? It was three or four years I was doing that work. And, and I uh, met a lot of people in that time. I met the officials in the county where we were working and I met policemen and, and, uh, uh, you know, more people in Chengdu, which is where I kind of operated out of. I just met a lot of people. So after all that auditioning, um, people started to figure out, well, like I really wasn't a, a plant, uh, from, you know, the U S state department intent on doing some nefarious thing, nefarious from government's point of view that I was really okay. And I could be trusted. So once you, people kind of get on board with that, then, then things start to open up and they did for me, but it's a, you know, it's a hard road in the beginning. And um, there's certainly a lot of foreign NGOs that have tried to work out there and, and they have tried to completely avoid the government and that usually doesn't work out well. So uh, those that make a good relationship with government actors, um, Generally, have a far more sustainable and successful result. That's been my observation, and it certainly was true for Comite Foundation.
2: Thank you. Uh, so, one sort of follow up on this general topic, which is um, a woman leading a project in a Chinese um, and Tibetan context. How did that work? You, I think, I mean, you. Um, I don't, I, you know, I've only just met you a, a couple of times online here, uh, but it strikes me you, ha- you have some, some young energy going. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well if, you, if you turn the clock back to like the eighties and even in the nineties, um, foreigners like white faced people, right? Like me mm-hmm. um, were regarded as in, in China. You were so unusual and so strange. You were almost like a third sex. So mm, yeah now okay. wasn't nearly as important as the color of my skin and the feminine. Okay. Okay. Those are the really important things. Now, that said, you know, there are all kinds of pitfalls out there. If you get romantically involved with somebody you're working with and, and, you know, I almost kind of started down that road as I describe in compassion mandala started down that road and then quickly kind of retreated. Um, and then never, never did that again. So, if you if you make that mistake, well, you can make a huge mess of things. And you know, don't get romantically involved. That's that's a, a good rule. Um, but other than that, you know, this uh, it's a fairly in 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 Chinese law, women are supposed to be the equal of men, and we know that's not true. That, that that's never been true, and it's less true now than it was in in the nineties. But um, even so, on paper, it, it does give you a certain amount of rights you know, and, and respect, uh, and they don't laugh you out of the room. Plus, it has to be said, I had a very capable uh, helper who later became our vice president, Kama China, uh, who was an ethnic Han Chinese man who had a Tibetan wife and lived in the region. And um, he basically accompanied me on any meetings with any big uh, big officials. He was always there translating because my Chinese was never good enough to really keep up. Uh, so, uh, and so that kind of mitigated a little bit, you know, because he was a guy, although he was not a, a, a big, tall, you know, uh, beefy guy, he was uh, more of an intellectual sort of character, but still he was kind of the doorway that, that got me into a lot of meetings that, uh, and helped me succeed there that otherwise I would never have done. So that is, that has to be said too.
0: It's interesting as you, throughout the book, you know, it's how you come upon a project is like, you have the eyes for, uh, just like seeing what needs to be done and, you notice something and then it becomes a project. I think uh, an example uh, on the education front, the, uh, um, you know, the challenge with the Tibetan uh, books was that there were, no t- there were no, like, science books in Tibetan, period. You know, there were, uh, and, and so part of the project was to organize the translation of certain books into Tibetan to make available to these schools. And it's just, you know, it, it's, it's interesting how you would choose these kinds of projects. But um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the education projects uh, along those lines and, and what gaps that you would observe that you would begin to fill.
1: Well, the reason for the book project, as I wrote in Professor Mandala, is, um, well, one of the reasons. Uh, I mean, science is important, right? We should all understand science. Uh, but another is if kids don't have engaging things to do at school, if school does not engage them, they, they will not learn uh, well or they may drop out and so in in the Chinese school system, then and now, the curriculum is mainly around uh, you know Chinese classical uh, writings and poetry and history. And that is not engaging to Tibetan students. So I'm, I'm a, a big proponent, you know, based on what I observed and what I heard, and um, uh, particularly from teachers, Tibetan teachers, I'm a big proponent of, of culturally relevant material in schools. And, you know, this is something we could probably do uh, much better at with the many ethnic kids that we we have in in our schools in america, um but anyway it, in Tibet it was fairly simple because there was at least there was just one ethnic group that you needed to engage, so you only had to deal in one language and it was very workable and and this is where you know my engineering mind maybe uh was an advantage because um because I'm a problem solver, you know I just learned to do that as an engineer and a, and a scientist. It's, it's all nuts and bolts. You just got to hook them up the right way and, and, you know, put in some WD-40 and you can it, it, it'll work. Uh, so I wasn't driven by ideology. I wasn't driven by, um, you know, while we must uh, do something about human rights, so therefore we're going to put out books about human rights. You know, that never would have flown. Um, but I was always motivated by, okay, what's possible? and okay i needed three things i needed i needed uh, a sponsor who's gonna pay for it i needed uh you know an actual need on the tibetan side and then i needed some tibetan person usually or somebody there who could kind of manage to get all the nuts and bolts in the right place and deliver them and uh so like a mechanism you know some workers to to do the project because i couldn't do it all myself so if i had those three things you know, I could do a project, and that—that that was basically the test uh, for for everything we did. Um, and there were a lot of things I might have liked to do, but they didn't pass that test. We didn't either; couldn't find the money, or um, you know, there there wasn't a need. Maybe there was a want, but not a need, <laughs> or there was no no people. There were no people who could do the work.
0: Mm-hmm. And were there things that uh, your organization specifically would stay away from or sort of say, we're not we're not going to do these kinds of things?
1: Um, so I I stayed away from any projects that were uh, principally aimed at promoting or or, or supporting religious activity, because that would have been difficult from the perspective of our relationship with the with the Chinese government. They wouldn't have uh, likely approved that. Though they're probably local officials would have welcomed it, but the higher level officials, no way. So um, nevertheless, we did work at monasteries that was aimed at cultural heritage, usually physical heritage, uh, like buildings and paintings. We did a lot of conservation work on buildings and paintings, as well as repairs on buildings that was aimed purely at the cultural heritage, you know, historic monument side of things. And so that was okay. Um, And uh, every time I would suggest something like, um, well, why can't we do a literacy program and have have villagers come into a monastery and get taught, you know, how to read by monks, uh, you know, my... Helper Mr. Wubangg Fu, he would throw up his hand and say, "No, no, 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 that's that's never gonna go no don't don't even try <laughs> so we we uh you know it's helpful to have somebody who's very astute, has their feet on the ground and knows the realities who can keep you away from making you know mistakes and I definitely had that in him
2: so there's a difference of course, between learning Tibetan and learning Chinese and um, um threading that uh, distinction uh, is a is would have been important for you must ha, was important for you i i assume
1: well so so again here's where i'm practical you know um of course people want to uh uh know and and support and nurture their mother tongue and they particularly if they're very religious which of course many tibetans are you know they they want to preserve and understand and 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 promulgate all those perpetuate all those those writings that are mainly philosophical and, and spiritual writings in tibetan language that's extremely important that is very central to a lot of people but you also need to know some Chinese, darn it. You know, this is, you're, you're ruled by Beijing and this is the reality. And if you, like, I'll give you an example, like how how impractical it is when you don't know Chinese. Um, in, in 2013, I, I did a long road trip and I had a driver who was a guy from the Minyak area and he could speak Minyak and, um, and some Tibetan, but he, and he could speak a little Chinese, but he couldn't read it. He couldn't read it at all. And so I took this driver and, and two friends and we, we we went way out of the Minyak region and we went miles and miles and miles and wound up in a place that's now called Shangri-La. And the Tibetan they speak there was unintelligible to him because it was a completely different dialectal mm-hmm. language, language, actually, different language. Also, he although he could speak to them in Chinese, it wasn't great, but he couldn't read anything. So my plan was that I was going to fly out of that place. There's an airport, fly out of that place. And he was going to drive back with the empty car. And the thing was, he was afraid to use the shorter, better route to get back home because he couldn't read the darn signs. (laughs) He couldn't read the road signs, nor was he very confident of being able to engage people he might meet by the roadside and ask directions. And uh, so he had to go back the very circuitous and and tortuous way that we had arrived, uh, you know, which probably took him an extra six or 10 hours or something to get home just because he, he couldn't read. And like road signs, that's important. Like in order to function, you need to be able to read that in order to function. You need to be able to read the label on a bottle of medicine that you buy in order to function, you need to be able to understand what's on the form you're filling out at the bank when you want to open an account or you want to withdraw funds or, you know, send money to your sick aunt or whatever it is you want to do. So, it, it, it's, so, and a lot of Tibetans learn Chinese very well from watching TV uh, because there's a lot of broadcast in standard Mandarin and they, they can, if they have TV, they will probably watch it and they'll get a lot of exposure. Um but reading is also important, <laughs> so uh i I wouldn't have been functional myself if I couldn't read sometimes I could at least read if I could go, went to the bus station I could read the bus, you know the destinations posted on the wall, and I could read the sign in the front of my bus that made made me confident I was on the right bus so all that stuff you know uh, you can't live without it at least not very easily. if you go to into a monastery, yeah, you can uh, you know. Although monks also travel uh it turns out they do travel, but usually in groups, so as a monk, I think you can make it, but um as a secular person no
0: I got I got the impression in the uh book that um, there was a changing role for education too like you describe a lot of the interface in some of the northern uh uh regions in the uh, uh in the uh uh calm autonomous uh, region that they um, where the herds, the herdsmen, the, the the sort of the the more nomadic uh, people, for them education was kind of like uh, useless because their kids wouldn't <laughs> learn the basics of uh, what they would need to for the lives that they were used to, and yet that seemed to be starting to change a little bit. I'm just interested how you saw that because that was really an interface of a, an older traditional lifestyle that was starting to probably fall away and, and certainly was discouraged by the Chinese government. And the children born into that world having to, to really start to learn about a very different kind of uh, uh, world.
1: So if you grow up as a herder in, on the grasslands, whether you live in a house or a tent, um, I mean, it's a fairly insular world, uh, at least it was. So nowadays people are a lot more mobile. A lot of herders have motorcycles, and uh and of course the kids get sent to school, so they the world is opening up. But in that older existence where they maybe didn't go to school at all, and all they ever saw, the role models, were their parents and uh monks, and you know, maybe the odd trader that, that came through now and again. Um or a driver, you know, th- those were the only role models observable to a kid in that situation. So however uh, talented they might have been in areas like math or um, writing or uh, um, building things, you know, they, they had no opportunity to even know such, such tasks existed to be done in the world. So that was um, very limiting, right? And uh, it's hard to say whether people who live in that very insular world, you know, with a kind of limited number of options, it's it's hard for me to, to say whether they're happy or not. I, I suppose they are. Um, but they're also very vulnerable to change. And change is more the rule than the exception these days. Um, and so... Uh, in order for people to be resilient and and to also fulfill their their, their dreams and ambitions and, and make use of their talents, I think it's better to let the world open up a bit and to learn about these other things.
0: That's interesting. That and I mean, whether really that's happening anyway, right? I mean, it's like they have to. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it it almost doesn't matter uh, what anyone thinks. That, that's just the situation
1: and I, and I and you're exactly saying what uh what I heard and saw from one Rinpoche, Kelin Ripache who started a school to teach nomad children uh you know things besides the world in which they lived taught them to see outside and so um you know as a Ripochet uh He's of course very invested in the religious tradition and 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 very religious himself, uh, but he also saw that the world was changing and and it was changing whether or not anybody wanted it to, and uh, so to make his people resilient, he believed that schooling was necessary and secular schooling, not just traditional Tibetan you know religious studies.
0: So another dimension that. Sort of touched on because uh, the let's say the life of the uh, nomadic people was rough, and there wasn't a lot of uh, resources for healthcare or healthy eating. So another dimension on the compassion mandala was the um, uh, health interventions or the uh, healthcare. You know, what what sorts of solutions did you find were workable for aid in that dimension?
1: Well, the the healthcare challenge in any rural area of China or any developing country in the world, but uh, particularly uh, I'll only speak to what I know, which is rural areas of China and most of the Tibetan regions we can regard as rural. Um, healthcare is an enormous challenge. It's a challenge in the United States, you know, with all the wealth we have and the knowledge. So it's even a huger challenge there. And from what I understand, although it was really awful when CommAid was working, um, and and there have been advancements since then. It's still not great. It's still pretty awful, uh, simply because just the the practical practical uh, practicalities of, of bringing in people with the correct training and equipment and and support to to do healthcare work in a highly dispersed and uneducated population. The the logistical challenges are are. Uh, Enormous. So with all that said, you know, you kind of have to look at it again, my engineering brain, all right, well, uh, I have a lever, I have, you know, some money, where can I best employ it? And uh, there were two things we did early on. One was to buy equipment for the government clinics that just didn't have the right equipment or enough of it. So, for example, we bought stretchers for them. They didn't have stretchers without a stretcher, you can't move a patient without if you can't move a patient, you can't bring them into your clinic very easily without hurting them, and you certainly can't send them up the road to the county hospital where they need to go. So, a lot of basic stuff. There's a long list in the book of things that we, we got. Um, but the other place where you can easily uh, use your crowbar your and, and is in the moment of birth when both the mother and the child are incredibly vulnerable and at risk for a negative outcome. And the the state of care for labor and delivery then was so abysmal um, in terms of like what the traditions were, traditional Tibetan way of doing things was to send the woman either into the uh, the, the barn of the house or if they lived in a tent just to the grass outside to give birth because birth was thought this particularly the placenta and the afterbirth was thought to be unclean so you didn't want that going on in your house so women went outside and and often they died because there was nobody there helping them and they just had birth alone which is just unimaginable you know to us in the west and and, and shocking when i first heard about it so, we began doing uh training for village women to make them into midwives, so at least there could be a birth attendant and Then we taught them a bunch of things about well, you want to be in a clean place, you know it should be reasonably sterile and indoors and um and it, you know just that intervention alone like bringing the the birth process out of the barn uh and out of off the grass into the house or the tent is already a big step forward just just for that you know, but we did a lot more. Uh, of course, you know, talking things like how to do CPR on a newborn baby. Sometimes babies don't breathe, and all they need, all you need to do is a little bit of like mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, as it's called, and and you can get them to breathe again. And um, but babies were dying because nobody knew how to do that. So we we taught these midwives how to do that. So there, you know, lots of things like that also recognizing problem pregnancies. So visiting a pregnant woman and, you know, talking with her and finding out how she's doing. And if it's, if there are uh, some red flags, you say, okay, you're going to go straight to the hospital uh, when your time comes. Um, and if you, the hospital's really far away, well, you're going to go before <laughs> and, and you're going to, you're going to be there and, and deliver in a hospital. So, those very simple interventions can save a lot of lives. And um, so that was, uh, we fortunately had a, a, a fairly consistent and large uh, donor, generous donor that that um, was supporting that work. And we supported it through uh, 79 midwives that we trained over the course of about five years. And uh, we did some follow-up. We had money to do follow-up in a very scientific manner. So not everything CommAid could do could be to be checked afterward with efficacy. But this one we did, and we learned that uh, it was um, eight to 10 years, well, no, maybe seven to nine years after the training, depending on what year they'd been trained, um, about half the women were still working in healthcare in some fashion, and half of them had gone on to do other things. And you know, we kind of wish it had been a hundred percent, but still half is, is pretty darn good. And that was a lot of babies and mothers that were saved in that time. So that was uh that crowbar worked and we we did manage to make a change there.
2: Thank you. So um another area um where you worked was uh I guess I would call it indigenous income generation. So the you know, the principle of um of uh uh, give, a, give, a, give a person a fish is one strategy or teach them how to fish is the more, effic- uh, the, the more efficacious over the long term. So uh, talk about that sort of thing, if you will.
1: Well, so the, the, uh, the economy of Tibet is overwhelmingly occupied, occupied and dominated by Chinese migrants who move there to start businesses. Because they know how to do businesses that Tibetans don't know how to do. So they come in, they open photography studios and dry cleaners and they sell cell phones and um, lots of things like that. They're somewhat technical and require some special equipment that is not available in Tibet. And they have the connections to go to get that stuff and bring it in and they can open a business. And these businesses are very much needed, you know. Um, But Wouldn't it be great if Tibetans could do this kind of thing? And uh, that is it's such a big hill to climb because the these industries are just overwhelmingly dominated by Chinese migrants. And not only do they have the knowledge and the the investment and the the, uh, tools to do this, these kinds of jobs. But they are very hardworking, they're very industrious, and uh they don't mind you know working 12 hour days, and um, they're extremely motivated because where they come from, it's so competitive. It's so tough to get ahead because you 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 know, there's just mobs and mobs of people all trying to get ahead at the same time. So you come to Tibet and the competition is suddenly a lot less, and so you can really do well if you don't mind the climate, you can do well there. So how do you find a niche for for indigenous people amid this in this uh, very uh, migrant-dominated economy? It's a huge. Thing. So um, tourism is one way, but uh, I, I've seen this now multiple times where the tourism industry just completely falls apart and goes to zero because of something like COVID, as we see every tourist thing in China was shut down not as long as it has been in the United States, but it was definitely shut down for a period of time, but also because of, of political disturbances and for various reasons, the Chinese decide, no, we don't want any foreigners in there. Uh, and maybe they don't even want any, any Chinese tourism, so tourism stop. So it's not a hundred percent reliable though. Tibetans can do very well if they are good at it. Um, so, uh, What in the end we landed on, we've tried a number of things, but what worked best was construction skills. Why is that? Well, because throughout the uh, 2000s, uh, there was uh, just buckets and buckets of money coming from the government to the Tibetan Plateau in the form of subsidies for herders to build houses. And so herders were building houses, but most of the time uh you know herders aren't very good at architecture. It's not obviously their in their tradition. So they didn't have the skills. So they would hire some contractor to, to, to do it. And uh, almost always that would be like a Chinese contractor because they were very competitive and on price and very fast and, and efficient. So all this money that was coming to the Tibetan plateau was immediately leaving again because the migrants earned it and took it away. So we started doing construction skills and we, we got uh, Tibetan instructors except for one, one stone cutter. We couldn't find a Tibetan stone cutter. We had a Chinese stone cutter, but we had a, a, a Tibetan guy who was an expert with, with, you know, stone construction masonry. And we had a Tibetan carpenter. They were both from areas where these, Uh, where people live in houses, right? (laughs) And and the architecture is really quite advanced and sophisticated and also earthquake safe, uh, remarkably. So we had these guys come in and we, we had them teach these herders how to build houses. And um, my God, we spent a lot of money on that project and it it had quite a lot of drama and conflict and problems. And that's all written about in the book. But
0: I just want to say that that's a very uh, interesting part of the book in terms of the drama (laughs)
1: Yeah. you know, if you think doing NGO work is like always a piece of cake, no, it's rarely a piece of cake. Like there's always problems. That project had huge problems, but at the end of the day, we were very successful in creating a bunch of Tibetan builders who could build houses, who could take these contracts away from the Chinese migrants and do the work and, you know, their customers were, were their kin and, um, And they earned a lot of money doing it. So that was fabulous. Other things that we tried, we we worked on handicrafts. Um, That was much tougher. Uh, But another thing that is, of course, uh, fairly straightforward to do is to send kids to, or young people to colleges where they learn how to be teachers and nurses and, um, you know, work in healthcare and education, which uh, the, the... the, the government is very keen to have more Tibetans in these jobs because Tibetans do better in these areas. It, you know, you bring a Chinese teacher in from the lowlands, and you and you put her in Tibet. That's just not a very happy thing for her. She doesn't want to be there. And uh, so, if you can put a Tibetan in that job, and also the Chinese teacher from the lowlands can't speak Tibetan, so can't talk to the students. Welcome about that. Much better to have Tibetans do those jobs. So if you can get the, the kids in, a, and usually by paying their tuition, is how we did it, pay their tuition so they could go to school to learn those skills and then get those jobs. And there were plenty of those jobs because both education and health healthcare have been in expansion mode pretty much nonstop for the last 30 years or so, maybe longer. So there's just more and more jobs uh, in those areas as the level of education um, that is now mandatory uh, as well as the available healthcare system as being, you know, improved little by little. Uh, there's always those jobs. So we did a lot of that too. And I, I pretty much guarantee you close to a hundred percent of those young women that we trained in, in those lines of work are still employed. Hmm.
0: Well, it's interesting. the you also were very successful in having sponsorships of students to pay the fees to allow students to continue to graduate. And you have a very sweet story about a prodigy that came through that system who ended up like probably being a good vision of the modern Tibetan who was so accomplished and, and so motivated that uh, she ultimately was able to uh, go to school in Korea.
1: Yeah, when you when you have young people with just such phenomenal amount of talent as this young woman had, and uh, and and they can't even afford to go to middle school, right? And they have to drop out and they end up be you know, working on construction crews and uh, you know doing low paid, blameless uh, work. It's such a tragic loss for society. And you know whether or not you you want Tibet to be a part of China it's hard not to want each child to be able to make the best of all their talents that they have. And this, this girl wound up being just so, uh, so exceptional in every respect. And uh, it would have been a, a quite a loss if she had not been able to fulfill uh, her dreams, which she is still doing. I'm happy to say I'm in touch with her.
0: <laughs> so yeah. What, what I was curious, what is she doing now?
1: Well, um, without going into too much detail, she has a business and uh, an international business actually. And um, you know, all things business have ups and downs, but she's, she's doing quite well.
0: Oh, it's, a, it's a, one of the many stories in the book. I mean, I, I, I highly recommend the book because there are anecdotes of people that are just like real lives uh, and how they're touched by the work that comedy is doing or uh, was doing at that time and so it brings a human dimension but also I, was, I just found it very compelling uh, maybe it's my own engineer's mind at the prob- the uh, ongoing problem solving that you described try to ne- navigate all of these situations and uh, whether it's how you navigate uh, corrupt officials and work around that to navigating the sensitivities of the government it's a it is just fascinating to see all the many dimensions of problems that arise that uh, you have to think your way through in order just to help someone.
1: Well, and, and uh, since you mentioned you know, this individual, and uh, we've, we've mentioned also uh, some Tulkus that I've worked with and known, uh, but there are many other individuals described in the book, and it just gave me great pleasure to tell the stories of these people uh, because I think in the West, we have a very hazy idea of what a Tibetan might be like. And it turns out that there are all sorts of different people, Very some of them very radically different from others. And um, to be able to show that diversity, uh, to me, I thought was important in really showing what the place is like.
2: Well, I think you succeed in that. and um, But you also succeed in... Uh, uh, in demonstrating a kind of uh, ter- determination. Again, I mean, you're you're framing it as as engineer mind, and and I I'm not an engineer, but I understand uh, what you mean by that. But I think it's also a kind of determination not to be not to let obstacles um, remain uh, effective obstacles, if you will to the extent possible. And I don't think that's only engineer mind, but, um, but I get why you would frame it that
1: way. <laughs> well, I not Notice in the book, maybe I don't talk about this very much, but when there were obstacles, I, I would generally just like change course. Okay. Let's do something different. <laughs> let's not do it in this town. Let's do it in that town. Um, mm-hmm. and, and being very practical, you know, uh, Yeah, and, and that's, one of the advantages there's some disadvantages but one of the advantages of being kind of very broad uh, in our geographic scope which m- some people might not think so but ganza prefecture where we were working is it's pretty large <laughs> and many towns in it many villages and uh if we didn't find uh fertile soil in one place we could go to another and um, some people might say that looks like NGO tourism, and 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 maybe it does. But also, you know, when you find the fertilist ground for your project, you know that project will succeed. And so we were doing that also.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, it, it, it obviously it's not you doing it only; it's the reception you receive from people who want to have you engage with them. And so if one area there's not there isn't reception then um uh why wouldn't you invite it's like you know in in any in anything that we do that involves engaging with other people people get to say no and they get to say yes and um there's no there's no stigma to that necessary it seems to me
1: Or anyway, whether you like it or not, you know, we got to live with it and find a different way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that one element that came up in some of the challenges um, you were describing in uh, uh, some of the construction projects is that if you go into a place and just throw money around and tell people what to do, then that's that's like fertile ground for corruption that people will uh, figure out their own ways of doing it. But if you go into a place and uh, have people have skin in the game, you know, and essentially set it up so that they're responsible and you're supporting them, it seems like that, that was a recipe for more effective outcomes.
1: Yes. And that was part of my maturation as an NGO leader was to transition from a projects that were really, that were driven by me and and my staff to projects that were far more driven or pulled along by the beneficiary who really took ownership of it. And, and if you can make that chemistry work, then you know, you're going to succeed. It's not always easy though.
2: No. Do, well, do you think that you're increasing familiarity with the context over the years helped you get better at that?
1: I definitely experience help. But I also uh, was exposed to workers from other NGOs that were, you know, larger and more sophisticated. And uh, we were such a shoestring outfit, you know, um, but these much larger organizations can afford to pay attention to, you know, sort of going to the ground and, 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 Early on, you know, before we started any project and talking to the local people and assessing their needs and, and getting their, their support and, and then, uh, you know, going from there rather than like me walking in and saying, you know, well, I think you need a, a I think you, you need some training here on construction skills. Um, but sometimes the local people, they don't have enough experience of the world to know what's possible. so. Yeah. So you know you have to kind of strike the the right balance between something they want and something that will bring like like you know a, a new secret sauce in, into the recipe that's going to make it successful that is not already there.
0: So so the Com-Aid ran from 1997 to 2010, and my impression from the book is that the uh, you ultimately brought it to a close, partly just because of changing life circumstances in your world and and but also there was a that two thousand eight two thousand nine two thousand ten period was kind of a rough worldwide period too in terms of earthquakes and financial earthquakes and the like so I'm just interested in you know how you see Aid having come to an end and you you wound it down, and in a sense, it's, it felt like you uh, closed, closed closed up, or you sort of responsibly ended the the, the uh, organization. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Um, so uh, 2008 was kind of the year that changed everything, and um, as you mentioned, earthquakes. <laughs> well, there was the financial earthquake. There was an actual earthquake in Sichuan that affected the area where Khamade was working. Um, and then uh, there was what you might call a social and political earthquake because there were riots that same year, oh, in, yeah. mainly in Lhasa, but also in other Tibetan areas that, that made the Chinese just say, oh, okay, we're shutting down tourism. We we don't want foreigners here. So that, that made it a lot more difficult to operate on the ground. Uh, we did continue but uh, scaled back to a large degree. And um, so that was another, uh, certainly another factor. And even today, particularly my friends who are in the tourism industry will say, well, 2008, that was the year that, you know, it all went to hell.
2: Uh,
1: And and since then, it, you know, sort of recovered, but uh, at the same time, the level of suspicion in, in the Chinese government towards foreign NGOs and, and and foreign foreigners in general has kind of been steadily rising. So, it's not a very good environment right now to try to recreate anything of what I was doing. But um, I also have uh, visited a few times since, and I've seen met you know people that I'd worked with, and I. Who'd been beneficiaries of the projects, and and uh, I, I've seen pretty much from a from an economic standpoint, everybody's life is really on an upward trend, without exception. People are doing much better. So that is something I feel like I I had a, a small role in, and um, of course the the rising tide of China's economy has lifted lots of boats, no question. Um, but you know when you take people who are so disadvantaged from the beginning um, and give them a leg up, then, then they do, they do get to ride that rising tide. And, and many, many have done so. So I feel very proud of what we've done.
0: Well, it certainly is reflected particularly towards the end of the book where you, uh, I feel pretty artfully tie the threads up of uh, uh, saying what happened with these, some of these different programs. Uh, uh, and And so it's it's just interesting to see where you see that you had an effect and yet at the same time, you're one person and a small organization working in a a large country. And, and so, I mean, I, I read the book, like the essence of karma yoga, which is yoga of service without necessarily being attached to the results. And yet it's uh, at the same time working to make sure that the results are meaningful and I, I guess, you know, that that's, that's what I, what struck me is, um, you know, even though it was engineer mind, you know, applying and solving all these problems, there was, uh, it was, a uh, you know, it was the compassionate response to the needs of the people that, you know, is just being, uh, enacted time and time again. And that's, and that's why I found, I found the book very compelling for that reason.
1: Um, I, I also, uh, One other reason to write it, um, and thank you for saying that is that I I was there for such a long time, you know, and, and the perspective that you gain from being there a long time and knowing people over 10 or 20 years is a, a much more nuanced perspective than if you go in there and you, you know, spend six months doing some research project and then you write a book about it. Uh, not that that doesn't have value, but, but the arc of people's lives is, uh, an important theme, I think, in the book, and uh, you know, particularly like the young woman who's a prodigy, but also uh, many others in the book. Um, Jatin Rupache is somebody I, I do see when I go out there. He's still working for the government. He'd like to retire. They don't want him to. He's his uh followers still love him and his school is doing extremely well. (laughs) So, um, you know, those, that upward arc of of the lives of people out there is a story I also want to tell. And it it really, I find it personally uplifting to see people in in a good place.
2: Well, I I think it's, as you mentioned earlier, I think it, um, I mean, one of the things about books in this case, a memoir, but it's a memoir where you're relating the experience of people who are living very different lives than the audience of the book, um, as I'm imagining it. And I think there's something uh, really valuable about that in, in making relatable these lives that at least start off in a very different cultural context, even though I suppose in some ways the cultural contexts are growing a little closer, at least economically, um, from what you've, you encountered at first.
1: Yes, that's true. And, um, you know, I, I'd like to just take us back to our earlier discussion about, about martial arts and, and um, the, the connection between the martial arts and what I, I found in Tibet. And there's a, uh, a story that I, I tell in the book about meeting a monk who was doing a pilgrimage of prostrations. And that is the most extreme, um, most hardship filled undertaking that we can imagine as human beings. He was traveling a thousand miles, laying his body on the ground in, uh, basically bowing and and touching the sacred earth and then standing up and then touching the next five or six feet of earth the entire way, a journey of at least a, a couple of years, if not longer. And what I have found in that practice, and I wrote about it in my first book Among Warriors, what I found it so compelling was that in my own experience of martial arts, repeating, you know, these repetitive movements they have a way of polishing your mentality and, and your mind and releasing you from you know a lot of fear and a lot of other sort of negative things and and the, the conversation with this with this pilgrim was just so purely uh, great and an and evidence of what that kind of practice can do for a person and I, you know, I never do what he was doing, um, even in my strongest, youngest days. Um, but I feel like I have experienced a little taste of that through a lot of the repetitive movements that I do as, as a part of, of karate practice. And that is also something that is so valuable in Tibetan culture and so important that, um, that's a story, too, that I wanted to tell and, and to share
2: well, goodness knows Americans can use um, the message that repetition is not just an obst is not just a a uh, generative of boredom
0: <laughs> yes, it actually creates something and the other, and the other message is that I appreciate from the book is that it's possible to make a difference and small yeah. acts small acts of kindness lead to bigger acts of kindness and lead to whole transformations of uh, people's lives
1: and and some days you just have to get off the internet and go do something
0: yeah <laughs> yes so that's Indeed. a that's a well, uh,
2: there's a good place to it's a good to place uh, to end. Well, conclude
0: uh, Pam, i I really appreciate uh, you taking the time with us and uh sharing your Experience compassion mandala is a, is a wonderful read i highly recommend it and uh it 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 really is a deeply heartfelt book and uh uh, uh strangely compelling because i i i, I just found myself um, uh pulled into the lives of uh these people
2: uh well it's a very human it's a very human book yeah. in that in that sense so so congratulations on it and um Uh, Thank you for being on the Mystical Positivist today.
1: Thank you, Bob. And um, I should mention for any listeners who go and buy the book, uh, they may notice not many pictures in that book, but I have a website. There's uh, a link to a whole archive of photos of Commaids' work from my website, and that's pamela-logan.com. Yeah,
0: we'll we'll put that in the, uh, when we post the podcast, we'll put those links in so that people can find that, because yeah, it's great to see the color pictures.
1: Yes, for sure. And and I also like I have to sometimes I have to look at them to believe it all it was real and really happened.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Understood. <laughs> you have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show we featured a pre-recorded conversation with author Dr. Pamela Logan about her latest book. Compassion Mandala, the Odyssey of an American charity in contemporary Tibet. In nineteen ninety seven, doctor Logan started Com Aid Foundation, a nonprofit that operated for fourteen years, assisting people in eastern Tibet with their needs for education, health care, cultural preservation, and economic opportunity. Logan is also the author of Among Warriors and Tibetan Rescue. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.